Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double N. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 615 of the podcast and it is Saturday the 2nd of April 2022 as I record this. On today's show I talk to Tiffany Yates Martin about intuitive editing. We discuss the three different brains you need, writer, reader, editor, common issues that come up during the editing process, the different types of editing, and hacks for helping your brain see your manuscript in a new way, as well as pacing, voice, and much more. So that's coming up in the interview section. So in publishing and book marketing news, the Alliance of Independent Authors is 10 years old this week and they track the developments over the last decade in an interesting article on the blog. From I'll quote a few things and sort of note a few things. It's really interesting because we often sort of time passes by and it goes past really quickly. And yeah, anyway, so they said publishing historians are likely to note 2012 as the year that the self-publishing sector took off its achievements, making it unignorable from then on. They quote the Guardian newspaper from 2012, self-publishing is coming out of the dark corners and is making its way into the mainstream. And I completely agree because obviously I've been self-publishing before that. I I printed my first self-published book in 2007 and went digital in 2008. But I remember the way I was treated (laughs) before then. And 2012, I started to be greeted with at least more openness at the things I went to. So 2012 saw the first Kindle millionaires and four self-published authors made it onto the New York Times list. And uh, the box set I was in that hit the New York Times in May 2014, soon after that, they changed the rules. (laughs) So that's what happened over those first few years. We were able to kind of do things and then they changed rules to stop indies doing such upstart entrepreneurial things. 2014, KU was launched and that changed the conversation. Before Kindle Unlimited, the debate was often traditional publishing or indie. And there used to be uh, a lot of uh, argy-bargy, we'd call it here. (laughs) Um, But then the discussions changed to exclusive versus wide. And that is still one of the main discussions in the indie community, really. Many of us who didn't choose KU remember how our sales dropped. (laughs) And of course, the business model changed and we had to adapt with it. By 2018, we were all focused on ads and they go through every single year in the post. Obviously, I'm not going to do that, but it's really interesting to read. Uh, By 2018, we were all focused on ads (laughs) in all their variations. The discussions were all about algorithms and audio began to take off in a big way. The article notes that 2019 was the year that indies woke up to business in a big way, calling it self-publishing 3.0 in the emerging what has become known as the creator economy with new revenue streams from direct sales, Patreon and many more options. Then, of course, during the pandemic years, as they will be known, 2020 and 2021, we saw an acceleration of digital reading adoption around the world and even more options within the creator economy. 
And indie authors increasingly found themselves having more in common with other creative entrepreneurs like artists and musicians, innovators and makers than with authors fixed on the traditional route of handing over creative freedom control uh, to a third party publisher. And I agree. I think uh, I've been going to quite a lot of networking events around more of, um, I guess, the NFT scene, the crypto scene and networking with people who are artists, musicians. I meet zero authors <laughs> at these events. Zero. I'm like the only one. I really want to meet some more writers. But again, um, writing's really just coming into an area that the other uh, creative spheres are adopting much, much faster. And I feel like this creator economy is actually a mindset difference a lot of the time. It is a different business model, but it's also a different mindset. We have the writing craft in common across the writing community, but everything else is different. <laughs> so it's really, I feel that's, that it, that might be the next uh, discussion, you know, exclusive and wide. I almost feel is the sort of, it's over, that discussion is over. The business model is changing again, and we're really looking at the creator economy now. So the article concludes, the self-publishing landscape of 2022 is light years from 2012, but certain fundamentals do not change. Creating intellectual property assets, understanding copyright and licensing, writing regularly, improving publishing and business skills, keeping a creative attitude of exploration, expansion and learning by doing, and patience, lots of patience. The heart and soul of what we do as authors and publishers has stayed unchanged. The job has always been to engage hearts and souls with our stories, our rhymes, our ideas, our imaginings, our craft skills and presentation. What's most notable as we look back over the decade is the incredible shift in author confidence and empowerment. The next 10 years will be even more amazing. We can't wait. Uh, I love the Alliance of Independent Authors. If you are not a member, it is a wonderful community. It also advocates for the bigger bigger issues in the indie space. For example, um, you know, the Audible Gate and things that happen with the big companies who don't care about us as individuals. So yes, the Alliance of Independent Authors. So yes, it has been an extraordinary decade and I expect the next decade to be possibly even more transformative. And of course, I realise that that is scary for many people and some of the topics I've been discussing on this show for really the last couple of years. I've been talking about futuristy stuff, AI, NFTs, blockchain, uh, different things. I've been talking about um, AI for voice uh, and I will be getting back to some of these other topics that the AI stuff in particular is coming along fast. But this passing of time and a decade, over a decade of change for indie authors also resonated with an article from Seth Godin this week. Uh, I've been following Seth since, really since 2008. I've read pretty much all his books. Uh, The article is on recalibrating and I'll leave a link in the show notes as ever. It's essentially talking about how we need to adjust when things change, adjust the way we look at things, adjust the way we act, adjust what we consider to be risk adjust our expectations of ourselves, of other people, adjust our attitudes, our values. And I feel like many of us need to recalibrate as we come out of the pandemic and also as technology changes even faster than ever and business models change. 
I need to recalibrate. I've been recalibrating recently and still, I I still feel I need to do some more of it. <laughs> and as Seth says, none of these changes are failures. They're simply steps in the journey. We change. That's part of the deal. A well-lived life without calibration is unlikely. So this is my question to you today, as we, we sort of mentioned there, the decade of Indy and the, the decade of the Alliance anyway. And my question is, what has changed in your country, in your life, in your family, in your career, in your writing life, in your mindset, in your income streams that might mean you need to recalibrate? Do you need to calibrate physical practices? Do you need to recalibrate your writing life or your relationships with some people or the way you see your business or the way you see money? Um, There's a lot of things that we need to kind of stop sometimes and go, right, what do I need to reset, recalibrate and so I can move on as well in different ways? So I will leave those questions with you and links in the show notes. So in my personal update, I have finished the edits of Ark of Blood and the updated version is with my editor. So that will be formatted and out in the next few weeks. Then I will turn on some ads again and see if my read through has improved. (laughs) But regardless, it's been a fantastic craft exercise and spurs me on to do the How to Write a Novel book. So I have also this week worked through Monica and Russell's Kickstarter book that we discussed last week. And I wrote a draft business plan. I did a draft budget and goodness it was eye-opening to work through that and actually do the practicalities. If you're considering a Kickstarter I definitely recommend working through that book and uh, thinking about the numbers because when you do that you can really play around with things and and it it helps you think about the details and uh, I was sure I wanted to do a Kickstarter. Now I'm questioning it. I have a lot more questions I need to answer in order to decide whether to go forward with that. Uh, it doesn't fit with my relaxed author approach. <laughs> so we shall see. I might just scale my ambition back and keep it simple. There's a lot of other things I want to do in the next few months. So I'm really looking at what I want to do with that. I I, I just want to give it a go. But when I put this plan together, I had just so many cool ideas and the problem is cool ideas take time so we shall see this week i also spoke at the all about blockchain conference which uh, is essentially, was essentially a shorter version of episode 610 so listen to 610 if you're interested but it was it was basically on the author side the author and publishing side of nfts and there were some really interesting presentations I think what was very interesting is this this was a conference uh, aimed at the publishing industry, actual people working in publishing. It was not aimed at authors. It was aimed at the industry. And so I was actually super nervous because this is not my usual audience. And I have quite a different attitude. So I kept referring to authors and rights holders because publishers obviously are rights holders most of the time. But I I know I had some good feedback. And one publisher talked about The Innovator's Dilemma, which is an interesting thing. There's a book called The Innovator's Dilemma, but it's basically 
how do you decide or how do you make a decision about when to allocate resources to new technologies? And this is relevant for all of us because I'm talking about things. And like I said, you don't have to do anything. I'm talking about stuff, but you don't have to act. I'm just trying to open your mind so that we can act when the opportunities arrive. Uh, but that was uh, the, the point that they made was the sort of you don't want to be the earliest adopter, but you don't want to be too late either because you miss out on the potential. But one publisher said, we have such a great business model with print. We're doing so well with print. Why would we go anywhere near this? It's too risky. It might all crumble. And I thought, on the one hand, he's completely right. There's a really good business model with print. And in fact, all indies are making more money with print too. Uh, I, you know, we just got paid. It's the end of the month, beginning of a new month. All the money comes in and it's like, yay, print sales are brilliant for indies too. But the point is that business model this year is going to be under pressure. Paper prices are rising because of supply chain issues, but also inflation. Inflation's eating into prices of physical or of all goods uh, and also biting into uh, profits. And our money is being inflated into disappearing too. So it's a, if you understand economics, you can see that there's some pressures coming on this print business model. But the, the principle of this, where should I put resources, applies to us as indie authors. And uh, Christine Catherine Rush always uses the sort of, would I be better off writing, WIBO, the WIBO acronym, would I be better off writing? And often the answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> which is my challenge because I get so excited about everything else. But what I think is you cannot do everything. There isn't time. So we all have to think about this principle of how many resources to allocate to new technologies. If you're excited about some of the stuff I talk about, then great. If you're not, then I'd still, I'd love you to listen, but there's no need to do anything. So yeah, these things take time. And as ever, I feel like part of my job is, as a podcaster and a commentator, is to talk about the things that are coming. And I'm enjoying playing with all of this stuff, but my business model, of course, is still 99% web two. <laughs> oh, these things take time, but as ever, I'll keep sharing the journey. So this week, as the episode goes out, I'll be heading to London Book Fair, where I'll be speaking on a few panels, having some meetings, celebrating the 10-year anniversary of the Alliance of Independent Authors. So there will be parties, and I feel like it is going to be exhausting and stimulating and interesting in so many ways. So I'll report back on that next week. So thanks for your emails and tweets and comments. Walt Jazzcheck on YouTube says, another tip-packed episode. I was taking notes like crazy. Thanks so much. Hopping over to Kickstarter to follow these authors. Brilliant. Monica T. Rodriguez says, cooking up a Beyond Burger while listening to the podcast. Can't wait to hear more about the bookbinding experience. May not ever do it myself, but it sounds fascinating. And Avery K. Tingle and Avery, Avery's got such a great name, right? Avery Tingle. It's very memorable. So, um, uh, and so we've been connected on Twitter for, I reckon, a decade, right, Avery? <laughs> but he said, settling back into work, listening to the Creative Pen episode on Kickstarter, and in caps, she actually has me interested in doing NFTs. 
which I love. <laughs> and Avery is a gamer author. And I think in gaming, these things are, are really taking off. So yes, thank you, everyone. And you can tweet me at The Creative Pen. And I love to see pictures of where you're listening or email me, joanna at thecreativepen.com or leave a comment on the blog or the YouTube channel. I love to hear from you. It makes this more of a conversation. So today's episode is sponsored by ProWritingAid, which fits well with our discussion on editing. So I use ProWritingAid several times in my writing process and always before sending to a human editor. So what is ProWritingAid and why should you even consider writing software? Shouldn't you just learn all those rules? <laughs> well, before you send your book to your editor, it needs to be the best that you can make it. And ProWritingAid can help you do that with its suggestions for improvement, including passive voice, always an issue, for writers, sometimes you don't even know you're doing it. Things like sentence length variation and complexity, adverbs, repeated words, dialogue tags, commas, which I uh, I always have fun with, typos for the specific type of English you use, as well as things like you started three sentences in a row with the same word, which of course sometimes you might want to do, but sometimes you don't. And it has some really useful reports to help you improve your writing. Things like pacing, you know, there's just loads and loads of brilliant things to help you. I love how I can write in Scrivener and open the project within ProWritingAid and it will check the content and update as I write and save it into Scrivener. So that's how I've been doing my edits for these rewrites is kind of opening the whole book within Scrivener and going through each chapter um, and yeah just sort of editing it live as I went and I just I just love it it's seriously I'm such an evangelist for pro writing aid because it helps my writing process so much I used to use Grammarly but I switched to pro writing aid as I feel it is much better for longer form books and also the integrations fit better with my workflow with Scrivener for example they also have integrations with Word Chrome Google Docs they have a plagiarism checker so if you're doing any writing with AI I suggest you use a plagiarism checker, always important. You don't have to be techie to use ProWritingAid. My 76, 77, I don't know how, my mum's in her mid-70s. Uh, she loves it and uh, helps her control her over-enthusiastic usage of in exclamation marks. So yes, I love ProWritingAid. I think you will too. Check out the free edition or get 25% off the premium edition using my link ProWritingAid.com forward slash Joanna, J-O-A-N-N-A, ProWritingAid.com forward slash Joanna. So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing. But my time in creating this show is sponsored by my wonderful patrons. Thanks to new and returning patrons in the last few weeks and those of you who have adjusted your pledge upwards in appreciation, you are brilliant. Welcome to new patrons, Ingrid Stelmacher, Lois Hoffman and Dee Vine. And thanks to everyone who's been supporting the show for years and months and days, you're fantastic. You can support the show with just a few dollars or whatever currency you fancy. They take a lot now. And you'll get the extra monthly Q&A audio where you can ask questions about craft, business, publishing, marketing, and yes, tech stuff, <laughs> AI, NFTs, etc. You can support the show at patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen. Right, let's get into the interview. 
Tiffany Yates Martin is an editor, speaker, and teacher with almost 30 years in the publishing industry. She writes contemporary women's fiction as Phoebe Fox, and her latest nonfiction book is Intuitive Editing, a creative and practical guide to revising your writing. So welcome, Tiffany. Thank you, Joanna. Thanks for inviting me onto the show. Uh, it's good to talk about this topic. But first up, tell us a bit more about you and how you got into writing and editing. Well, the writing I'd always done, like most of us, I started from the time I was very young. My mom recently gave me back a copy of a book I must have written in elementary school called, embarrassingly enough, My Autobiography About Me. I wrote it myself. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> and it's full of gems, like uh, my brother is annoying, that kind of thing. <laughs> But it was funny because I bound it and I put my author note in there at the back and my um, I had back cover copy. So I think that was ingrained. But I actually went into acting as a career, which is how I sort of side, side hustled into editing. I was working as an actor and thus working as a waiter in New York, like many of us. And one day I saw in the New York Times something that said, get paid for reading books send us $25 and we'll tell you how. And I wanted to find something with a little more longevity than waiting tables mm -hmm. that would allow me flexibility for my acting career. And I had been an English major and always good at it, always loved it. So I thought, well, give this a try. It's probably a scam. It wasn't actually a scam. It was full of really great suggestions for how to approach. This was mostly for copy editing and proofreading, which is how I started how to approach uh, the managing editors and the copy chiefs at big publishing houses. So for, gosh, probably that was in the early 90s. And for probably the first 15 years of my career, I was working as a freelance copy editor for most of the big six back when I started. And then about 12 years ago, I decided to move into developmental editing. And I've been doing that ever since. I work with authors directly, both indie and traditionally published. And I also work with several publishers. But then also you write contemporary women's fiction, which I always find interesting because I feel, I mean, obviously we all self-edit as writers, but uh, an editor, like the editor's brain, <laughs> it can be so different. So I'm really interested. Like, So when did you think, oh, I know I'll write fiction too. And how do you manage those two different brains? So interestingly, I didn't try to set out to become an editor, but I realized right around the time I think I shifted into developmental editing, it's my first love. And I do love writing and I always have, but I think I'm an editor first. And so as you correctly point out, the hardest thing about being a writer, if you're also an editor, is that your brain is working as editorial mindset, and that can shut you down. I think it's what we do sometimes as writers when we, you know, I always advocate, try to draft the story as freely as you can, because if you are sitting there editing it or observing it as you're going, you're getting in your own way and you're shutting yourself down. You're shutting off the very part of yourself that can achieve what you're trying to achieve because it's the equivalent of having somebody over your shoulder judging every line. You know, did you mm. really mean to say that? Is that the best way to do it? Oh, come on, that sucks. And that's a horrific way to try to write. Uh, so fiction was always the thing I most wanted to write. I did work as a journalist for a while, but I loved fiction, but I had to learn to shut off the editor brain. And it was interesting because that was part of what helped me develop a lot of the theories that I use in the book, Intuitive Editing, was that ability to separate out. I talk about the three stages of writing and the three brains you need to be <laughs> 
in at different times. You have to be in writer brain when you're writing. And then you shift to kind of reader brain when you're doing your first assessment of what you have on the page to see how well, how effectively it comes across, how it strikes you. And then you transition into editor brain to be able to figure out why it may not be working as well as it could in certain areas and how to address those things. But then once you figured that out, you bring in, you go back into writer brain and you bring in all of those skills you learned as a writer to use as revision. One reason I think editing can be hard for us is because we're not really taught how to edit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're taught how to write. And and those skills are definitely what you will use in editing and revising, but we teach them almost as if drafting is the main process of creating a story. And it really is just, as I always say, the first base camp on Everett. Much of the bulk of what a writing career and writing craft is, is the revision part. You're, you put your story on the page as well as you can, and you then get to deepen and develop it into the thing that you saw in your head that may not be coming across yet on the page. To me, that's why it's, I love it. I know a lot of authors dread editing. (laughs) I hate Mm -hmm. having to do it. They see it as like the red pencil slashing into their work. I don't think that's what it is. To me, it's the process of doing more and more deeply of what you love about writing in the first place, which is creating these characters, creating worlds, putting them into these situations, and you find out what the soul of that story is, and then you develop it organically as you are working through your editing and revision. All editing is doing is identifying where what's on the page may not reflect as fully and deeply and effectively the way you've envisioned it in your head. Yeah, absolutely. And I like editing uh, a lot, actually. So <laughs> I find that first draft is is the more difficult bit. And then I love my editing. But I think people's processes differ so much. But I love that you mentioned there the reader brain. I, I haven't really heard it described like that before. But you're exactly right, because you do the writing brain thing and you write the thing. And then you if you read it as a reader, then you realize that mm-hmm. you've used an acronym that you haven't explained, or you've just introduced this character and you haven't described them, uh, or they're just talking in an empty room and you haven't, you in your head, you know what the setting is, but you haven't actually <laughs> described that, or you've completely forgotten something explaining, not explaining, but, you know, but putting it into action or doing something to communicate with someone else's mind and that I, I that I feel that's so important that we have to remember we're not telling the story to ourselves. <laughs> we're telling right. it to, to a reader who literally hasn't got a clue what we're talking about until they read the words that we put on the page so let's just go in, into the book a bit more how do we get the separation how do we create enough distance so we can move into that reader brain or into that editor brain well To get back to reader brain for a second, I love that you hit on that because I think that's one reason we run into problems when we're editing our own work is we skip that part. Mm. The way that many of us have, again, we don't teach how to edit or how to revise. So what most writers do, in my experience, is finish the draft and then turn back to page one and start going through. And little by little, you're making little changes, little you know, whatever tweaks you think you might need to make. But what we skip over is that crucial piece that you just pointed out about seeing it as a reader and seeing how the whole holds together. It's your first 
really only best chance to take in your work as close to the way a reader will see it as possible because you're still fresh, because you finished writing it, and you have not yet seen how this whole thing holds together. So how can you go start at the beginning if you haven't yet taken stock of exactly what you have on the page? And the reason that it doesn't usually come across exactly as you intended is because of the other thing you pointed out, that filling in the blanks. You know, it's not like, oh, we assume readers will know this. I think we just, we forget. We think Mm. we have put it on the page and we don't have the objectivity to assess whether or not we have. And that's why I think you have, that's why I think of it as three different brains, because you really have to disconnect from it to a degree as the creator. So how do you do that? The best way to do it is time. (laughs) You Mm. know, the longer you can step away from a story, the more you'll come back to it with an astonishing freshness that will reveal things to you uh, that you probably would never have seen if you had immediately started going back through it. That's not always a luxury we have, especially if we're on deadline or have, you know, put deadlines on ourselves that we're trying to meet. So I have a bunch of little, I call them tricks. I hate that word, but some of them really are just silly little ways to trick your brain. I recently heard you talk about the fact that I think you have two different desks. Yes, you do. Well, I go somewhere else. Yeah, I just go somewhere else. I went to the cafe this morning to edit. Yeah, I think that's a way of like, so we train ourselves as writers to, you know, put your butt in the chair every day or whatever your routine is so that the muse knows where to find you. It's the same thing when you're approaching editing and revising. If you do it in the same place where you created it, sometimes you it's really hard to get out of that mindset because it's habitual. So just shake it up, go to a different part of your house, go to a cafe, as you said. I used to be not a skeptic about this, but one of the things I always suggested to authors and never did myself was read it aloud or have it read to you. And I knew it worked for some people, but I was like, "Mm, I don't really need to do that. That's not going to work for me. And then I just recorded, you and I were chatting about, I just finished recording the audiobook for intuitive editing. And oh my God, I was (laughs) stunned by how much you see it differently. You hear it differently. Not only the words themselves, like I was catching echoed words and clumsy phrasings I could have made better, but that's just line editing stuff. I was seeing how the flow holds together and how the ideas come together. And is this in the right place? And is this the most effective way to state this? And luckily, because it's set in stone already and has been published for a couple of years, yes, I was pleased to see it was. But it was really fascinating to see how how that changed it and not just the reading of it. But then when I went to proof the files, the audio files, hearing it read opened up even more stuff to me. So that's a great way. Um, This is one of the silly little tricks, but honest to God, it can work. Change the name on the cover sheet of your manuscript, not to your pen name, not to necessarily a real author's name, just make up a name. It's the weirdest little distancing trick, as is changing the font that you usually write in. If you're used to seeing it one way, I know one author who swears by the much maligned Comic Sans (laughs) when they're doing their edits because it makes it look different in the same way that you might put it on your e-reader is another great way to do it because suddenly it's formatted differently and that sort of tricks your brain or print it out, seeing it on. Mm, if you I usually, print it out. Yeah, I, yeah I'm because it by hand. Yeah. Because why? Does that give you a different perspective? 
Yeah, I just because uh, when I write and I do the first kind of self edit, it's all on the computer, and then I print the whole thing out, and I print it double page, so I could almost fold it over, and it would be like a book. Um, oh, so cool! It, yeah, so it's almost, and I have to wear my glasses now because I can't really see the see the font properly. <laughs> but it's like I feel like by printing it out, it's become it looks like a real book, and also mm-hmm. I can um, just see it more how it looks on the page, and that helps me with pacing and it, th- there's all kinds of things that printing it out does in terms. Well, I like that you say trick. You, you have to trick your brain because we think we know better. We think we've done everything, and then you'd like you say you change the font, and that will move uh, words onto the another line which then helps you see words that you've repeated or sounds yeah. that you've repeated and you're like it forces how did you I not see that <laughs> it forces you outside that creator perspective and to see it in a new way and it can be really helpful as silly as it sounds yeah so let's just talk about some of the common issues that you see and I want to take it in two parts so first of all with early stage writers which is people with their say their first to their third book within the same genre uh, I think you know that if you jump genres it's almost like starting again every time but what are some (laughs) of the common issues you see with manuscripts from early stage writers you know, honestly, differentiating between what I see from early stage writers and then more experienced writers is a little bit, to me, in my experience, artificial, just because you'd be surprised how universal the things I see most commonly are. And mm-hmm. it usually has to do with what I call the holy trinity of story, which is character stakes and plot. It just may be that an author who is farther down the road of their career, we can dig maybe a little bit deeper or... I can shorthand as an editor, you know, I can say something a little bit more like uh, stakes here are not really clear. Could you put that on the page more? Whereas with a newer reader, I might have to go into a bit more detail and explain why the stakes are important, what I mean by that, exactly how to show that on the page, that kind of thing. Hmm. But the things I see most often are with character. I always say that readers don't care what's happening until we care who it's happening to. So if We do not have sufficient character development so that we have a reason to invest in the character and we don't have to like them. We just have, they have to be real. We have to know enough about them and who they are to feel that we want to get in the car with them and take this journey that's going to be 80,000 words or more. Is this somebody we want to be with that long? And then with stakes, um, if the character who we now have come to care about, or at least you know, invest in. If they do not care profoundly about something that they are pursuing, then we don't care. So if stakes are not clearly differentiated, clearly defined, and evident throughout the story, then it's hard for readers to feel invested. And then with plot, I usually see, (laughs) I have little catchphrases for all of these. With plot, I always say, action is not plot and plot is not story. So this is one area where I do see a difference with newer and more ex- and more experienced writers. Newer writers sometimes will have a whole bunch of exciting stuff going on, but that's mm. just action. What makes it plot is that it is in service to something that the character wants, their goal, what is at stake. What makes that story is how the character is changed by it as a result of their pursuit of this goal the things that happen to them along the way, which is the plot, 
changes them, which is the character arc, from who they are at the beginning to who they are at the end. If those three things are not rock solid, then the story, it's like three legs of the tripod. It's not, it's just not going to stand as firmly as it could. But the other thing that I will often see is a lagging, um, an unclear, let's say, central story question, which is what's the main reason that we as readers are reading this story? What is it we want to find out? Why do we keep turning the page? So there will be one big umbrella question generally. Uh, will Katniss survive the Hunger Games, for example? But then there'll there'll also be smaller questions. Will she keep her sister from having to go to the Hunger Games? Will she get a good weapon? Will she be adequately trained? Will she get Rue out of that tree? Mm. So we need to have that sort of propelling us all the way through the story with also sustaining tension, which works in service to suspense. Suspense basically creates a question. Tension creates like conflict, friction, something standing in the way of what the character wants. And sometimes I think newer authors get into the habit of everything's fine, you know, smooth sailing, the character's just going along, living her life. And we, that's not story, but that's real life. We don't read for that. We read for the peaks and the valleys, for opposition, for conflict, for things standing in the way. And we need to have that all the way through the story. If tension flags, think about like pulling your reader through your story on a rope. If you let go of that rope and tension flags, what happens? Nobody's moving forward anymore. And it's so interesting because so there you've talked about character, about stakes, about plot, suspense, tension. You have not even mentioned grammar and typos. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for pointing that out. And what's so funny, yeah, what's so funny is that many new, this is what I think the difference is between early stage writers and later stage writers, or what I've at least seen in myself and other people. Obviously, I'm not an editor, but uh, is that early stage writers, they literally jump into grammar and typos, whereas Mm. once you've done a few books you understand that hey you you know I can use pro writing aid to fix those but I cannot fix (laughs) some of these much much (laughs) bigger things that a developmental editor as you've talked about will get into so where do grammar and typos sit and in the editing process and and yeah I mean where's the importance of that well it is important and that's uh, grammar and typos I mean, honestly, if we're just talking about that, that's copy editing stuff. And that's the very last gilding the lily. But a lot of authors, I think, do line editing first. And that's that's polishing the prose, right? That's making it pretty. It's, I always say, trimming the fat and uh, trimming the flab and adding the flavor. And that's sexy and fun. Everybody wants to do that. <laughs> but that's the thing about going back to the beginning and starting doing that. You're missing all the stuff that's more foundational to the story itself. And I always say, if you, if story is like building a house, that would be like hanging the curtains before you've got the drywall up or the windows installed. You've got to make sure that structure is solid before you start doing the sexy HGTV makeover part where you get to decorate it all. So when I wrote the book, I actually laid it out the way that I approach an edit that I often suggest authors approach an edit, which is start with the macro edits, and that's the holy trinity that I just talked about, character stakes and plot, which is the foundation of your story. Once that's in place, then you can look at the micro edit stuff. That is suspense and tension. It's showing and telling, point of view, momentum, structure, the voice. And only after you've got all of that in place, do you get to reward yourself with the sexy fun part of doing the line editing, which is tied in with voice, 
but it's also making your prose as specific and tight and elegant and polished as you can. But don't start with that because it's counterproductive if you don't already have, I mean, a lot of it's, you may cut a lot of it, you know, you may want to revise a lot of those scenes. You just painstakingly Mm. spent so much time making literarily perfect. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, just sort of back on the improving, you said you said there about getting some distance, that leaving it for an amount of time is a good way to get some distance. And it's funny because I'm actually right now I'm editing my first three novels, which I wrote in 2009, uh, <laughs> 20, 2010 and 2011. So I really have a, and they started my career. They've got good reviews on, but I'm now reading them more than a decade later. So wow. 2009, I know 2009, I wrote Stone of Fire and I'm, I've just finished revising. I've just put out a new edition and it's so crazy what I'm noticing from that difference. I'm like, okay, uh, interesting. I mean, and, and the distance is so far that I, I think I can get uh, quite a, uh, I've been scared of it for a long time, but I was able to get some perspective. But one of the biggest things I noted that I wanted to, uh, and I noticed you have a chapter on this in the book, is pacing. Now, I write thrillers, and I noticed that my first, the book I published, the pacing was almost non-existent as in I think because I read so much literary fiction and back then as I still do but I mean I've read a lot more thrillers since but my paragraphs were like pages long Mm. and I didn't have any sort of white space I didn't have enough dialogue or punchy um, even just hitting the return key um, sentence fragments ways of communicating pace on the page Mm -hmm. so what are your thoughts on pacing obviously not everyone writes thrillers but how do we communicate pace? Well, let me start, if I can, by just differentiating for a second between momentum and pace, which I think some authors uh, confuse. And so they're not, they're approaching the wrong thing. Momentum, a lot of authors refer to that as pace, but really what momentum is, is how your story moves forward and it should always be moving forward. Pace is the speed at which each scene progresses and that can vary and it should vary. I always say that momentum is that like the Niagara Niagara Falls and the Mississippi River both have momentum, but they move at a very different pace. So that's a good way to remember the difference between them. Pace is a great tool to use in service of creating the effect you want to create in the reader, as you said. So uh, one consideration is genre. If you're working in a thriller genre, you are going to have a different pace throughout than you would if you're writing literary fiction, which moves at a much slower pace. But you also, in every genre, you want to vary your pace. If it's always moving at this crazy fast clip, you're going to exhaust your reader. But if you, if it's always moving at a really slow pace, you may lose your reader. So if you're looking to, if we're talking strictly about pace, I talk about suiting it to your genre, suiting it to the mood of the scene that you're writing. So if this is a high paced uh, thriller scene where you've got a chase scene, let's say, or you want to create high suspense, high suspense is often well served by fast pace. How do you actually do that? You talked about several ways. You do short sentences. You give a lot of white space. Um, You keep the, not just short sentences, but keep in mind the feel of your sentences. You can use long multisyllabic words and that's going to draw your pace out, or you can keep them short and sharp and that keeps pace clipping faster. If you have a lot of dialogue and you break that up, if you have big chunks of dialogue, that's going to slow down the pace. If you have a character 
one thing I often see is there'll be a very high stakes moment in a scene like that. And the characters will be talking like this, where they're simply chatting out the way you would in a regular conversation, what's going on. That's not how you communicate pace and urgency. If a scene is meant to be happening at a fast pace, then you want to, the way we do in an actual fast paced scene, if you, let's say, had a car wreck, you're not going to call your husband and say, well, I wanted to tell you that I just saw this car coming by and I hit them. And then you're just going to go, I got hit by a car. I need your help. So you want to keep in mind how we communicate and not just your characters, but you as the narrator. Mm. But momentum, I think, is a really important thing to talk about too, because very often I think momentum flags when we lose those key Holy Trinity areas, like the plot is losing cohesion or the characters stop progressing along their arcs or the story stakes have deflated. And when that happens, it doesn't matter how fast your pace is, you're not going to be able to pull the reader back in because you've lost momentum, which is the basis of what story is. And I think when you start, and I don't want to discourage anyone listening, like if you are starting out as a fiction writer, I remember feeling like, oh, I just have to learn this, 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 and this, and and it'll be all (laughs) fine. And then then a decade or so later, it's like, goodness, I still have so much to learn. I mean, you, I mean, do you feel that? I mean, you've obviously written a number of novels, and you you do all this editing. It it feels like it never stops, right? And maybe that's a good it never thing. Never stops. What we? Why would we bother just writing the same thing over and over again? It's like we need to challenge ourselves, and there's always something to learn, isn't there? From from whatever the next book is, or or a book that we've read that we've just gone, oh yeah, that that did that thing in a really good way. Which I think is part of the process. It's how we grow as artists. You just talked about going back to books that you wrote more than 10 years ago. And part of it is that you're seeing what you're seeing because of that time and distance we talked about. But I would bet that the bigger part of it is that you have grown so much as a writer. And that doesn't make those books bad. I look at my early novels and they're not as good as my most recent novel, but they're not bad. I just was in a different place as an artist than as a writer. Mm. And now I've learned more and I'm still learning more. Even as an editor, I've been doing this 30 years, Joanna, and I learned something all the time. And if I didn't, I, as you said, I would get bored. That's what the process is. That's how we grow as creatives. Um, you just reminded me there, and I'm not comparing us to Picasso, but I have been to the <laughs> Picasso Museum in Malaga in the south of Spain, and Picasso's from Malaga, uh, was from Malaga, and uh, they have a museum there of his early work, like as a child mm. and a teenager, and you would no way look at those things and go, that's a Picasso, uh, if you compare it to what he was doing in his later stage. But what I love about the visual art community is that you'll go to a museum like this, and they'll be, you know, this was this period, his turquoise period, and this was his orange period and that was the modernist period and that was the realist and it's almost like part of the artist's journey is separating your creative life into stages with an acceptance that you will grow and change which I almost feel like in the publishing community it, th- th- there's this sort of deification of debut writers being amazing <laughs> that's so true <laughs> you know what I mean and it's like why can't we have this acceptance of these different stages of the artist's um, life path I guess and it seems to me that traditional publishing just bangs another name like another pen name mm. on an author I mean what do you feel about that? Well, back in the day, in the glory days of publishing, back in Max Perkins' era, my editing idol, <laughs> that the way that writers and publishing worked was that they found a writer with promise, someone that whose skill and talent they wanted to nurture, 
And that became the process. You didn't just sign an author for the two book deal. And if it wasn't a smash, out you go. So the debut wasn't as important. In fact, I would venture to say that it was more what you just described, that the debut was simply a starting place, which to me feels so much more, <laughs> forgive me, intuitive yeah. as far as what a what an any artistic career is. If we see it as some sort of finish line or we quantify success by saying you are a multi-bestseller on your first novel, so you are a successful writer. I think that sets up an artificial expectation of what being an artist is. We've conflated the business side of the art, which has very little to do with the creative side, with the creative side, which is a constant experience of growth and learning. That's what being an artist is. Yeah. So on that growth and that learning and the things that people talk about when you're an early writer and you don't have a clue what they're talking about, I think author voice is one of these things. And you have a, a mm. great chapter on the author voice. And it's funny because, again, I'm reading my early and the re, the only reason I'm rewriting these three books is that they're the first three in a 12 book series. And so <laughs> the first book is free everywhere and it needs to draw people in to the rest of the book so I can make more money from the series. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of why I'm doing it. But as, I, as like you said, like they're not bad. They're, they're just different. But as I'm reading them, I'm like, okay, I can see a glimmer of my author voice. But one hmm. part of my edit is strengthening that voice because I know now what my voice is as an author. And But it's so hard to define. What are your um, tips on finding that voice? Or is it literally just a case of having to write a number of books until you discover it? <laughs> no, I don't think always. I mean, that is a way to do it, but I don't know if it's so much, oh, I love that you called it finding your voice because and, and that you know what your voice is now, because I often hear authors talk about creating their author voice and it's, you don't have to create it. You already have it. We all have a voice in the way we communicate, in the way we write, as far as our phrasing and our rhythm and our word choice, it's in our imagery, but it also stems from our experiences, our worldview, our background, our cultural inheritance, our frame of reference, all of that already exists inside of you. And the process of figuring out your voice is really just freeing that, letting that loose. But there are ways you can do it. One way is to do what you did and write dozens of books until you figure out what it is. <laughs> but if you want to figure out what it is, my favorite way of analyzing anything is to look at other authors' work because that's where we have the built-in objectivity we do not have with our own work. So if you have a book that you love or an, an author that you love, and voice is everything. I mean, frankly, I talk about in the book, voice is the way somebody dances. It's the way somebody sings. It's it's a director's voice in how it informs their art. Their films all have a, same, a similar feel to them. So you can analyze anything at all. But literally, don't just read to read. First, take it in as, you know, this is why I love this story. And then sit down and figure out exactly what it is you love about your favorite author's voice? Is it the way they say things? Is it the way, is it their phrasing? I remember I, I once read one of Jennifer Weiner's books and she was referring to a character as every hipster. And I thought that was the funniest thing. Like she had this really unique worldview and way of putting things that kind of shifted my mindset on them. So what is it you love about them? Uh, that's the best way to learn really any craft element because you have the objectivity. But then analyze 
Um, here's some, here's more little tricks that I use. Analyze the impressions that people do of other artists. You can't do an impression unless you understand the essence of what makes that person so distinctive. So if you look at, for example, Matt Damon doing Matthew McConaughey, he gets his in, he doesn't sound like him so much. He has his intonations. He has his delivery. He has his kind of laconic laid back, you know, he says that, all right, all right, all right. But, <laughs> but he does it in a way that evokes what makes Matthew McConaughey, Matthew McConaughey. Jamie Foxx does that with John Legend. Why are Christopher Walken or Robert De Niro endlessly mocked or, or um, done people do impressions of them? Because they have these distinctive characteristics. Have someone do an impression of you is incredibly revealing because you realize how you communicate yourself, how, how you communicate your ideas. For example, I, I looked at my own communication style and I know that I, I tend to use long sentences and I use $5 words where a $2 word would do just fine. And mm. I love imagery and metaphor and the M dash and semicolons. All of that is part of my voice. But then if we default to only those things that are our instinctive voice, that can become a bit repetitive also. So then we get to experiment with voice. One way to do that is to take like a passage in another author's book and rewrite it in your style, rewrite it with no voice or write one of your passages in the style of another author's voice. See if you can start to pin down what creates voice, but also differentiate between your character voice and your voice as an author. They're two different mm -hmm. things. Yeah, for sure. And uh, this also, for me, I didn't really figure it out until after those first three novels. And I actually started in my new author name. So I write fiction under JF Penn. Obviously, you use mm -hmm. a different name as well. But by I feel like my voice as JF Penn is completely different to my voice as Joanna Penn. <laughs> and that have, having two author names really helps me. And also the brand, which is really the promise to the reader, that, that's part of author voice too. Once you understand author voice and branding, I feel like they're almost the same thing. I'm Joanna Penn talking with you and you're Tiffany. <laughs> and it might be a completely different conversation <laughs> if it was JF Penn and Phoebe Fox. <laughs> Yeah, you know I, think, I, mean? I think that you sort of focus the camera in a different place, if that mm, makes sense. Yeah, you know, yeah. like in one persona, this is the this is where the camera is focused. And then you shift to another. I hate to say persona because it sounds fake. It's not really. It's just another aspect of your personality. And if you're a writer who writes in different genres, for example, as you just pointed out, you may have a different voice in your romance novels than you do in your mystery thrillers. Yeah. Well, I think, and that helps me too. It's like another trick because when I go and do my editing or my work as JF Penn, it's different to when I go as Joanna Penn. But so, it's all authentic. Yes. Does it all oh, feel? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But it's just, it helps me. Like it's another trick. It, you know, I can kind of mm -hmm. put on like people, you know, if you're speaking, you put on makeup and you wear certain clothes because you're going out to this event or that event. And uh, mm -hmm. I think voice and, and brand yeah, resonate with each other, but that is a massive topic. We're almost out of time. And I do have a really important question. Now, both of us are clearly believers in the importance of a professional edit where we pay a professional, <laughs> but many writers struggle with money, uh, especially when they're starting out. And you do have a great chapter on getting editorial feedback as a frugal writer. So can you give us a few ideas? Yeah, I don't think finances should ever be a barrier to your 
creative pursuits. And while I think a professional edit is an incredible tool and can be a huge help and a shortcut to getting your story where you need it to go, you don't, it's not a deal breaker as far as, I mean, many authors have gotten publishing deals without ever having hired a professional editor because it wasn't really a big thing, right? Up until Mm -hmm. the explosion of IndiePub when suddenly they became widely available. So there are lots of ways. What an editor is doing for you is sort of like when you're doing a home improvement and you hire a contractor because they know all the right people to hire. They'll bring in the best craftspeople. They'll keep everything on schedule. They know what order everything needs to go in. It makes the job massively easier, but also more expensive. Can you do all that yourself? Yes. Will it be harder? Yes. Is there going to be a giant learning curve? Probably. But don't feel that you can't do it. What you're really looking for by hiring a professional editor, you are trying to get someone to hold up the mirror to what you have on the page and see how closely it reflects the vision that you had in your head. And is it coming across as effectively, efficiently, powerfully as possible? So how can you get people to help you with that? The first thing is critique partners, which are so valuable in so many ways. The obvious way is you get critique from people who are generally also writers and can give you their input, can reflect back to you what they're seeing in ways that are actionable, like an editor does. They can phrase it, you know, instead of saying, I just, this wasn't really working for me. They can say, oh, I didn't understand what the character wanted in this part of the story. And that can help guide you in making those revisions. But the hidden value of critique partners and crit groups is in doing those critiques on other authors' work for the reason I talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. You are so much more objective and you learn how to see things. You're really just training your editor brain. And once you learn how to make that shift in your own work, you get that distance and then you learn how to come at your own work with that same objective perspective. The other hidden value of critique partners and groups is that you get to hear especially in a group. I was once in a huge critique group, which was a little bit unwieldy. It was 25 people often, but one after the other, after the other, you hear all these people's input on story and you learn to see what they're seeing, why it's affecting people the way they are. And really importantly, how to how to process the critique that you're getting because you see very viscerally that there will be things that many of the readers see and point out And those are probably things that you want to look at because they're striking a lot of people the same way. And then each reader will also have her subjective take on it. And it's important to remember that all editing, all critique, all input is subjective, even by your editor, even by a publishing house. Nobody knows the magic formula (laughs) and story is as personal (laughs) as it gets. So So one of the skills that you want to develop is knowing how to take the feedback you get and incorporate that, take what works and toss what doesn't, as I always say. Beta readers are invaluable as well. I differentiate those from crit partners. Crit partners can often help you work as you are drafting. Sometimes they work with you at the end of it, just as an editor would, but beta readers generally will read the finished product and they are often not writers 
which can mean that the feedback you get may not be as actionable and and helpful unless you help guide your beta readers. So for example, on my website, I have among other free downloadables, I have sample questionnaires you can offer to beta readers so that you can, you know, if you ask a lay person, the first time I ever gave my husband one of my novels before it was published to help me with, I said, (laughs) what did you think of it? And he goes, oh, it was good. Yeah, said, yeah. <laughs> Great. Thank you. So how, like what was working for you? What, what was, what did you think was most effective? And he goes, it was good. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> if you give them questions, specific things, was there, and, and they're lay reader questions, right? So things like, was there anywhere you put the book down and it was a while before you got back to it? Was there anywhere you found yourself disliking the protagonist or didn't understand what they wanted? Was there anywhere you didn't feel especially engaged? Those are questions anyone can answer, whether you're a reader or not. One thing I suggest, and I'm always a little leery about it, is little baby editors. (laughs) When I first started, when I wanted to move into developmental editing from copy editing, I didn't have a track record and I needed one, right? I wasn't going to ask someone to spend thousands of dollars until I could feel pretty confident that I was offering them that value. So I would offer free and incredibly cheap edits to my author friends while I was learning my skills. So you take that with a grain of salt because you have a little baby editor who may not be quite as adept at seeing all the things a more experienced editor would see. They may not be able to give you the feedback in a way that is constructive and positive in a way the more experienced editors might. But it might be a great way to get kind of a bargain edit. I would not ask an editor for this because that's a little bit insulting. (laughs) But, But if you happen to find one of these hungry little unicorns, that can be a way. The only other thing I want to add, though, is that I think editing, one of the misconceptions I think we've gotten into with this explosion of having editors available is this mindset of you must hire an editor because an editor does the editing part. And that is true to a degree that they do the editing part, but that is also one of the basic skills every writer should have. We talked a little bit before about the three sort of stages of creating a story. An editor brain is part of writer brain. Writing is rewriting, (laughs) Ernest Mm -hmm. Hemingway said. And so this is something that we can all improve on by doing things like reading books on the topic, mine, or Saul Stein has two that are brilliant. Dave King and Rennie Brown have one specifically about editing. There are great classes and workshops you can take at like the University of Chicago, which is the industry standard kind of standard bearer for editing in general that offer editing courses. The EFA, Editorial Freelancers Association, offers reputable ones. If you're going to conferences or or sitting in on them in our post-COVID world, If you've ever heard of RNCs, reading critiques, that's another way to see what agents and editors who are experienced in the business will read somebody's submission out loud and then talk through exactly what they're seeing about it. That's an amazing way to start getting that analytical, objective distance we talked about. And then do other people's critiques and listen to the critiques of their work. That's another way to hone your skills. Brilliant. Well, we've talked about loads of fantastic tips today, and uh, I I recommend your book, Intuitive Editing, which is fantastic. So where can people find you and your books and everything you do online? Thanks. Easiest place is probably my website, foxprinteditorial.com. That's got a lot of the downloadables I talked about, tons of free resources, actually, for authors, recommendations of books, downloadables. I've got a free YouTube channel that gives 
uh, tips. I've got a weekly blog that goes out with craft tips and writing life information. And then I've also got online courses on there and not just my editing book, but there's a link to my fiction as well, if people are interested in that. Brilliant. And all my socials are on there. Okay. Brilliant. Thanks so much for your time, Tiffany. That was great. Thanks, Joanna. So I hope you found the interview with Tiffany interesting and that it's given you some tips for your editing process. So next Monday, I'll be talking about selling children's books direct with Daniel Miller. And we actually have a great discussion about business models and what we might be leaving on the table. Daniel has such a different model to most indies, and I learned a few things, and so did he during our conversation. It was quite a different kind of interview. So happy writing, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.